Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Jess Remington. Jess is a next economy strategist focused on the design and ethics of emerging post-capitalisms. Her practice and research is grounded in historical analysis, accessible truth-telling, and present-day experimentation. She is focused on supporting the imagination of small business and organizational leaders to step out of the current extractive systems into more resilient paradigms by transforming how we work. Her latest book is called Beloved Economies, Transforming How We Work, written also co-authored by with Joanna L.C. So I want to give her a shout out as well, even though we're only talking to Jess at this, this moment. And I want to welcome you to the deep dive. How are you? Good morning. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the show. The, the book is beautiful, by the way. Like, I love like tactile things and the, just the, the feel of it. I, I never know how much like the authors have control over like the look and feel of their book. I, I know a lot of people think like, oh, they can do whatever they want. And it's really not like that all the time. But the, the book has like a good heft to it good fonts. It's easy to read all these little things. And it's, and it's, it has a very beautiful illustration on the cover. So well, thank what, you so much. We had a surprising amount of control because the oh, good. page two is kind of a next economy publisher that democratizes power in that way. So that means a lot. Thanks. We labored over those choices. <laughs> yeah, a- absolutely. The the choices were more than noted, right? Like, um, it's it's weird. They they say you should never judge a book by its cover, but I found that to actually be a, a pretty useful way to judge many books, right? And um and also picking my wine choices, right? Like oh yeah, it's the only who knows any who knows anything about wine is like if you make a good label and it looks kind of compelling, you pretty much you pretty much got me. <laughs> so you know the book is is again called Beloved Economies: Transforming How We Work. Usually when you see economies or economy, these sort of words, very rarely do you see words like beloved attached to them. So I want to give you an opportunity to share a little bit about why that purposeful choice was made to link two things that are not usually linked and coming up with this idea of beloved economies. Thanks for asking that. It's, I mean, that decision was twofold. And it came from uh, our relationship with Dr. Reverend Virgil Wood, who's a longtime civil rights activist and um, organizer in his early 90s now. So for many decades has been doing this work long before both of us. (laughs) And um, we had met him about halfway through the research. And uh, I remember like where I was standing (laughs) when we had our first call and we were describing to him some of what we are seeing qualitative research-wise in these organizations and businesses that we were following who had changed their ways of work in really particular ways and were having um, ripple effects. And Dr. Wood jumped in and said, well, that sounds like they're creating beloved economies. And I had never you know, heard that phrase. I knew beloved community, but not beloved economy. And that was um, beloved economy is a, a term that he created uh, early on in organizing um, alongside Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his early days, in Dr. Wood's early days of organizing work, and had been kind of holding close to his heart and um, mind and community uh, of other organizers since then, continuing economic justice organizing, um, and had been kind of looking for a way to connect that work to other movements and and organizing efforts happening. And it did create cognitive dissonance for us too. The first time I heard that term, I was like, whoa, whoa, there's something happening in my mind that's great, but also making me really think, can can an economy be beloved? You know, what does that mean? So that's that was the beginning of that term being part of this community of research. And the more we 
worked on um, incorporating that frame with Dr. Wood across all of the other uh, collaborators, everyone had the same reaction. And we were like, okay, there's something really juicy here because it just the the idea of saying beloved economy provokes other questions. And the best we can do with this work is get more of us asking questions about, wait, can an economy be beloved? What would that look like? You know, even the word economy, like I feel we can probably devote an entire show to that. We're, we're not going to, but I think <laughs> we, we very reasonably could as someone with a business background, a financial background, having worked in that space and, and studied it from an academic perspective. You know, economy comes when you walk into a room and you say that word, it, it has a certain heft and weight to it in, in the way people think about it. But yet it also manages to be two things at the same time in, in my interpretations. It, it, it manages to be all-encompassing because it's big, the economy, while also being um, almost purposefully obtuse to obscuring the real value that um, people create, right? Like we, we often talk about goods and services, but we don't in the same way talk about human beings, right? So I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about that because it, it I'm, I'm always wrestling with this idea of the intangible and, and the tangible, you know, the visible and the, and the invisible, the formal and the informal. And economy captures all of those things at the same time. Um, but is also only used in certain ways um, for certain agendas. So the book does a lot to untangle that. So I wanted to give you an, an opportunity to, to share your, your thought on centering so much of this language in a word and concept as big as economy. I so resonate with everything you, you just shared. I think there is an intentional um, effort to obscure the most of us feel like we can't understand economy. Economy is just for experts. It's just for economists. Like, we normal people don't do economy. What is it to even do economy? Once we saw the results of the research, when we worked together to create this into a book, we wanted to make an effort to reclaim the term economy. And part of that came from this epiphany we had in talking with, you know, we're, we're grassroots scholars. So we were activists before we did research. So sometimes when we're talking to other researchers who are more within academia, there's a lot of cross-pollination and learning that happens. And one of those learning moments was, wow, the way economy is taught is not agnostic from a particular system. So the only way in which we're taught economy and, you know, even across like hundreds of textbooks, we could not, but we found like one textbook in the, the world, at least with, with in, within English that we could find that didn't teach economy as one elected system, one ism of capitalism. And that alone is fascinating, right? That this concept we, you know, that, that an economist it trained, let's say in, in at least the US context, becomes an economist, primarily knowing economy as only the mechanisms of one particular election of a system, one choice, almost like if you're a business, you can, you know, you're an LLC and you can be an S corp or you could be a B corp, you know, da, da, da. like how crazy would it be if we taught all of business law through the, the mechanics of just an S corp or something, you know, and we'd have a really skewed perception of, of what a business was and could be. So that was really intriguing to us. And the other thing that was really intriguing was this idea in pop culture wise and like when we hear economy in the news or when we talk to our you know families about it that it was all on the macroeconomic realm versus the microeconomic so it's all at the level of like what states or governments big multinational corporations the fed like these kind of terms that you know even for us we'd have to like re-google stuff like what does that actually mean what are we saying what are we saying that you know we take it for granted they're just like oh yeah that's what economy is but all of that's on the macro level, but there's this whole other realm of microeconomics. It's not just about voting with your dollar as a consumer. That's what kind of filters down to us. Like that's how you can make a change, but it's actually about just what we do day to day within the entities that make up the economy at large within our family units, within our small businesses, within our communities, all of that's economy because all economy is, is a management of our shared resources and decisions. So there's such a opportunity, although of course, a lot of restrictions for all under, but still such an opportunity for 
deeper and broader imagination. Uh, anytime we can start to talk about imagination, it's it's a critical part of of the conversation. And, and when you when you mentioned that we have this focus on macroeconomics, you know, I I think about you know this sort of obsession with the stock market, right? The mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. idea that you know we everyone watches, you know, they they will talk about the stock market in the same way they show the lottery numbers, you know, the daily lottery numbers, right? It's like stock market went up, stock market went down, to and the health of the economy is is tied to this singular, you know, indicator. That, that fluctuates up and down in a lot of people's imagination. So that kind of made me laugh. And I'm reminded of a show that um I was I was watching on Apple TV and it's it's called Trying. It's a pretty funny show. Um I won't give the whole thing away, but one of the main characters needed to make an, you know, he needed to make a, a large amount of money in a short amount of time. And he he gave a bunch of money to like a stupid character on the show and was like, hey man, just just short it. Isn't that what like people do to make money, just short it, right? And he was like, he doesn't know what the term means. He doesn't even know the context. Uh, it's just like, just, yeah. just do this thing, right? Like I saw this movie about it, like right. and magic magic will happen. <laughs> um, uh-huh. So just funny how, again, in pop culture, these ideas, these notions permeate. You know, you, you know when you're talking about economy, you, you focus so much of the research in the book Transforming How We Work is literally the subtitle, right? Mm-hmm. And you make the point that the way in which we work is broken. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're living in a there's always broken things, but most recently anyone picking up picking up or reading even pop culture type news will see these words thrown around like the great resignation or now there's mm-hmm. quiet quitting in in the maybe the last month or so. So there's a lot of consternation around work. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about and and share how the brokenness of work is so connected to some of these isms that mm-hmm. you talk about in terms of how we think about economies. Yeah, I mean, it's so wild to me that we that most of what those of us within, let's say, global north. Western dominated, we'll just talk about the U.S. in this context, um, work culture experience is work only through the lens of a specific set of designs that enable the current ism that in the book we call the loveless economy to continue going, to function, which is really limited if you think about it, you know, what work could be. Um, but it's all we are swimming in. So, you know, it's really hard to see water if you're a fish, right? Or to know what water is. And that design of at least the extractive, hyper-privatized version of capitalism that we think creates this lovelessness feeling of the economy um, in our, our workplaces is designed to extract wealth from our communities and Um, our labor to consolidate it in the hands of an increasingly fewer and fewer, right? So, you know, there's many other brilliant speakers and philosophers and academics and through the generations that I can speak much deeper to the roots and ills of capitalism. But I think where, where we're trying to contribute here is to remind us all that if you design from that starting point how work happens, then that is the system we're in. But it doesn't mean that there can't be different choices made. And the roots of um, particularly the U.S. context of this ism are starting places that continue to be copy and pasted into our workplaces that I think if more and more of us were aware of that, we would want to make some pretty massive shifts. I mean, Dr. Caitlin Rosenthal's work speaks to that a lot of the management practices of today are copy, paste, copy, paste over generations from plantation economy practices. Um, So much of how scale and extraction of community happens from community communities happens comes from really really poor labor practices in early industrial revolution in the north and from enclosure movement from kicking people off land and the genocide that happened to indigenous societies here in the states um, on turtle island and you know 
all of that was by design, right? These weren't accidents. These were designs of uh, an attempt at very brutal extraction that's still baked into the DNA of certainly our economy and therefore our workplaces. But if we are the economy, if our workplaces make up the economy, then it's not just these macro level levers we can pull to make shifts. It's also the culture at the micro level um, that we can we can pull levers with to say, you know, wow, we'd like to stop sourcing from these really brutal, toxic, oppressive practices and how we work. I, I definitely love the connections that are made, right? Because, you know, I always tell people, I only invite folks on the show that are we're in the same, we're in the same universe, right? Like, like so this is a, a, a audience of, of um, receptivity. Um, but one of the things that, as I'm listening to you share that, is thinking about the underlying culture of, of capitalism, right? That the big ism that I've argued both in, in my work and with other guests on the show, that that's the prevailing sort of global religion, right? Mm -hmm. Like folks can be whatever they want to be wherever they are, but to some extent, we're all in the capitalism show, right? To, to some degree or, or not, right? And like any belief system, it's ha it has its own values that in, in my mind, beyond being loveless, as you've described in the book, the innate cruelty of it is reasoned to make us immune to it. Right. And, and, and what, I, what I mean by that is, is you know, pe people will say this all the time, whether to each other or in, um, you know, again, pop culture stuff, movies and TV shows, hey, this is not, it's not personal. It's just business, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, business is a proxy for the economy, right? It's like, I did this, whatever I did to you that was fucked up, hey, mm -hmm. that's business, dude. <laughs> you know, like, that's, that's how this works. So in a lot of ways, the cruelty is kind of cooked in. So how do we confront that when I think most people, like you said, would say like, oh, we don't want to do these things, right? Mm -hmm. Harm other people. But then it's also like, eh, I kind of like air conditioning, right? I kind of, I kind of, I kind of like my iPhone to not cost $2,000, right? Which maybe it should cost, mm -hmm. right? When, when we, when we calculate sort of the environmental ecological cost and the human cost, iPhone should be like priceless, right? But they're not, mm -hmm. they're ubiquitous because we don't give a shit. So like, myself included, right? Like I'm not throwing myself as some avatar, like mm -hmm. goodwill. Like I got an iPhone, you know, I recognize that, you know, a lot of bad shit happened for me to have that phone as I do this interview on a Mac. So um, <laughs> not that Apple's the only bad company out there. They're all terrible. So um, <laughs> can spread the terrible award love. Right? You know, they're all terrible, right? To some to some degree. So how do we like confront that mm -hmm. when the ism mm -hmm. needs that, right? It can only work if these are the processes that that are that are underpinning it. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, first off, something we've tried to be really careful about and it's a really confusing line in a way because it's complex is to to not replicate the narrative that a lot of, let's say, these corporations were mentioning would love to remain the narrative, which is, well, the only way to make this change is we, you know, we really got to push responsibility down to the consumer level. Like if we would all be in a better plan if we all just recycled, but we're going to keep extracting massive amounts of oil over here and, you know, fucking people up over here. But if you all just recycled, it'd be okay. You know, so it's really hard to um, exist within capitalism and want to step out of it. So I think we all just, part of the research has also been about being, creating community with businesses and organizations that are trying to make these shifts and individuals and kind of like group therapy to just be like, you know what, we're all really enmeshed and it's really like, there's snars, is that the right word? There's prickers that kind of get you, you know? And when you try to move out of that like pricker bush, 
it can cut, you know, and this, and this isn't just like about the discomfort or something. You know, if I had a different phone, like there are real repercussions too, right? And they're not distributed equally. Um, there's a reason why we have limited imagination around economy, you know, which, you know, we could talk deeper about it if of interest, but I, I think, so anyway, just to say that like this, there's a reason it's hard and it's by design um, as of course, I, I know, you know, but just to remind all of us, because I, I think I can sometimes forget that. Um, and then we don't want to push down blame to the individual. But what we are trying to do is push down a feeling of a greater opportunity to imagine <laughs> expansive imagination to the individual. And in the research, we call that expanding our economic imagination, almost like it's a muscle that we need to practice. And the best I can say is just, it is hard to make those changes in our workplaces. But the reason we kept with this research for what ended up being seven years in the end is we saw businesses, organizations, and individuals doing it. And that was so inspiring. And they all were doing, it turned out they had a pattern of similar practices and how they were were transforming how they work. So what we're trying to do with this offering is kind of provide like a, a beginning on-ramp to a conversation within our teams and groups by giving seven practices that have worked for other organizations and companies that aren't, you know, outrageous things to start doing it. So they seem, but they're a little bit like a Trojan horse. Once you start doing it, more and more parts of the system unravel and you're like, oh my God. But as that happens, more can be imagined, you know, and, and you're doing it in solidarity with others. So there's support, but it's not easy though, too. It's still hard. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. None of this is, is easy, you know, because like you said, it's what we've known, right? And it's, and it's one of the, you know, I, I, I think it's the dominant organizing principle of, of everything else. Everything flows from this much like a church is, it's why I, I liken it to, it's the, it's the ultimate religion through which all the others then flow, right? Particularly in a, in a Western dominated from an ideological perspective mm -hmm. world, which is the world that we live in, you know, that's the, the dirty, sort of ramification and long tail of colonialism, right? That even in places that didn't have these things, they now do. And they and they move in the in the space that that has that has created. And I, I wanna give you an opportunity to talk more about that that notion of imagination and collaboration, particularly as it as it relates to changing work. Because they're they're mentioned throughout the book as um, key components to actualizing these these kind of changes. Yeah, I mean, this is the part of the research that I love the most because I love the idea that we can reframe in a super real way imagination as a practice with teeth. Like I, the, uh, imagination is a is part of the business toolkit <laughs> that if we want actual innovation that outperforms the status quo that isn't just within tinkering with the deck chairs and the Titanic, as you know, someone has once said, um, but building, you know, a whole new ship that's workable. That is innovation that requires dreaming way outside of the business as usual as we know it. And that's going to require imagination and this kind of imagination that happens in co-creation that happens together with others so that our inspiration and our errors can balance each other out and and help guide um, guide what can be possible, not just plausible. And we ended up including this in the book because you know there's a community of 60 organizations and businesses that we followed alongside and ended up you know becoming basically family with and co-researching together with for about seven years and there was this point, like I think year four, where we were looking at interview transcripts and we realized that like almost every transcript and interview imagination came up. We're like, wow, that's so interesting given that, you know, that's not necessarily, you don't go to business school. There's not like imagination 101, you know, it's your primary course you have to take. But yet that was the foundational layer of what each of these individuals and teams were were prioritizing was really stretching the what could be possible you know and and, and when the pandemic hit i believe that's why you know we don't we can't 
do causal effect through the no for sure. But my belief is that the reason um, so many of these teams and groups were so resilient in comparison to other enterprises on, on a whole, just anecdotally, is because they were already really practiced at reimagining. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the pandemic was one of those moments where as someone who works in in foresight, you know, I would talk to organizations and they would always tell you, you know, oh, this is impossible. Like, you know, whatever you were proposing was impossible. And I and I think, you know, just the, the status quo of business, you talk about status quo a lot, you know, business as usual, the status quo comes up quite a bit throughout the book. And I think the workplace, the modern workplace from a going into an office perspective was one of those business as usual things, right? Mm -hmm. I think if you'd gone to the head of Procter & Gamble, the head of Goldman, the head of Google and and said, hey, ain't nobody going to be coming in this motherfucker anymore, right? (laughs) Their their heads would have exploded. Like, what are you talking about? Like, that's my my general white man voice for like authority. (laughs) What are you talking about? That's preposterous, right? <laughs> like, you know, preposterous is the right word choice there. I feel yeah, like it's a- absolutely. <laughs> it's sort of like half Silicon Valley Titan, half J.P. Morgan, eighteen ninety, right? Like, you know, a <laughs> little yeah. bit of little bit of both, right? It's like I've been watching too much Gilded Age, and I'm like watching, reading too much TechCrunch all at the same time, right? So, like. I'm imagining like all these people using words like preposterous, right? As they wear like Patagonia fleece. <laughs> right, of course. Yes. And a top hat and a monocle, just so we have like the whole mixed bag of metaphors all in one, right? <laughs> but, but I think, you know, had had you told these people that, mm-hmm. they would have said it was crazy, right? But then they had to do it, right? So not saying that the pandemic was worth that kind of seismic shift, but I think it's useful to to kind of think that in the imagination scope, very few things are are truly impossible. Right. You know, when it when it comes to work and in the way in which we conduct business, a lot of it is just like you say in the book, business as usual. We're used to it mm-hmm. for for whatever reason, so we do it, right. and then we we tinker around the edges. Right. So instead of being like, oh, this is really meaningless shit that we're doing every day, we're like, let's put in beanbag chairs and football <laughs> exactly. tables. Right. Right. <laughs> You're still doing meaningless shit, but you can like have mm-hmm. a, you know, pinball machine. Isn't it different now? You know, um, right. let's keep the proletariat feeling like there's innovation happening. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Look, it's a shiny pinball machine. Um, <laughs> So I say that to kind of get to thinking about how we build solidarity, um, how we build deeper connections in order to drive a different imagination. You know, how, how, does, how does that factor into creating something that goes beyond that status quo and that business as usual? Do you mean like creating connections with our aforementioned archetype of, you know, the, uh, it like could, you know, it, to be honest, it could be anything like I've, I mean, I've gone on the record when people talk about the future of work, like as a a son of labor people, Mm -hmm. I'm like, future of work is labor, right? If we're we're not centering the solidarity that comes from people being able to organize and have, build institutions and have power, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then we're not, like Slack is not the future of work, right? right? Like these sort of technical doodads and, and bullshit is like, no, that's all nonsense. So I, I want to try to pin down that idea of like, how do we pull together, mm-hmm. particularly when so much of what we do work is so different, right? right. It's not like we're Teamsters, right? <laughs> like it's a different, different kind of thing. That's probably a, maybe not the best labor example, right? But it's mm-hmm. one that I'll use. <laughs> Great question. I Yeah. I mean, one of the things we've been really curious about during this research and what prompted the book was actually the way we wrote an early article in 2017 in Stanford Social Innovation Review that was called Creating Breakout Innovation. And, you know, both Joanna and I come from an economic justice organizing perspective, labor adjacent. Um, And we were so curious about the fact that the data was showing that there was a 
business case oriented around innovation, basically, for a lot of what we had been organizing for from a power shift perspective. So what happens when we package it just according to what the data says, you know, who walks through that door, basically, and and how can we build solidarity from organizers to, you know, really well-intentioned folks that just actually want to try to do deeper quality work within their organizations. But maybe, you know, and I um, use this lightly knowing all the complication with this, I do believe it, it was a privilege in my life to be exposed to economic justice organizing. I know not everyone's had the privilege to even understand the whole world that exists within organizing and activism and um, what it can feel like and the community that can be there. So for those that haven't had that exposure, um, how can we build bridges um, by using um, like bridging language, basically, that gets a whole bunch of us that want a similar thing, but maybe wouldn't know it if we tried to use the different lingo together and, you know, cross pollinate and, and do some education in the process too. So that's been a lot of the attempt at this book is how do we just really break things down in such a way that creates the biggest tent possible because we really deeply believe that most of us want an economy and a business as usual, what it will become to, to center labor, to center, to shift ownership. And, you know, this is Ed Whitfield, who's one of the co-learners in the book, and it's just an incredible lifelong organizer, um, it speaks to in the research that there there is really no innovation if there's not a shift in ownership. And that that is my own belief as well. And what I love about the outcomes of this from a qualitative research perspective is that the more people start practicing these seven practices, ownership ends up shifting even from businesses and organizations that that was not their starting point at all. So I don't want to like imply it's like a secret Trojan horse from the labor movement and it's been a long mm-hmm. play or something. It's just the facts, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, so much of this is is language-based, right? Like we started the conversation talking about the the inspiration and then the, the purposeful choice to create that temporary dissonance of beloved and economies. You know, we've talked about this this notion of a, a loveless system. Mm-hmm. And what I'd love to do, no pun intended, is kind of bring in those countervailing notions, you know, because as I, again, as I read the book, you know, I'd written a, a piece uh, uh, at the top of the pandemic talking about how I, I felt like the pandemic, yes, COVID is a crisis, but we're really in a crisis of care in our society, right? And our, our interlocked societies that we're building systems that are not designed around deeply caring yes. about other people, other um, systems, you know, and that are the relationships that we need to build have to be more steeped in that. And I think mm-hmm. love is the same, is the same thing. You know, years ago, I used to act, um, organize a conference and we did a talk that's like 2012. Um, it was called Love as Public Policy. You know, mm-hmm. what does our public policy look like if love, that sort of communal love is at the center of it? Mm-hmm. So I want to give you an a, a opportunity to talk about how those kind of notions are, are interwoven in these imaginations for a, a different type of economy, a, a beloved economy, as you detailed in the in the book. First off, the, the idea of a crisis of care as the root, I mean, that just so resonates with me. I think that's a really powerful frame. So one of the activities we did in research together was a lot of speculative fiction writing together where we would have in our interviews ask the co-learners, which is the name we use for the individuals within the different businesses and organizations we followed. We would on occasion ask, okay, it's 50 years in the future or 30 years, I think it's the time frame, yeah, 30 years in the future. You walk out your front door, you step into a beloved economy, whatever that means for you. What are you seeing, feeling, smelling? What's around you? Describe it in as much detail as possible. And then we would look at all the details across interviews. And and now we do this, you know, the book talks too with those who have come to participate. And so many of us mention really similar things, you know, to be enmeshed in community. There's 
there's food, there's music, there's this deeper uh, weaving with uh, the non-human world. There's quality of time that's more spacious. There's within that spaciousness, an ethic of care that can and, and deepens amongst individuals. And it's all within just describing, you know, what it is to walk down the block and what do you see <laughs> in, in a beloved economy. So as it relates to imagination, we're really trying to challenge ourselves and everyone that reads the book to be like, okay, if that's the point we want to design from then, not the extreme consolidation of wealth that's, you know, excavating our communities of, of wealth um, over generations and generations. If instead we want, we all, we want to walk down the block and have an experience just on a super basic level, then like, what are the business practices that get us there? Because if we can design, if some some other folks <laughs> through generations can design from that other starting point, we can design from this starting point and it can be one immersed in love and care. And that doesn't mean some like touchy-feely kumbaya shit, like, oh, on our beanbag chairs in, in the, we all got to be friends in the company. And like, that that's what that, you know, <laughs> means or something. I think there can be this co-option and this confusion that, you know, can create actually toxic work environments. But if you're really rooting care, like you're saying in that ethic, and we're building resilient community from there, then what does that mean about how we hire, how we fire, how we write contracts that don't commodify labor, perhaps, you know, all of these are these individual choice points that are ripe for imagination, which, you know, makes it kind of fun. Not that we all have equal latitude, not that this is easy, but there can be a feeling of joy within the creation process we've seen in different businesses. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, joy is a very distinct feeling from, from happiness, right? Like mm -hmm. happiness is marketing. Joy is, is, <laughs> is, is work, right? It, and it's, and it's, and it's hope. I always reference um, my yoga practice and say, you know, it's, supposed to be joyful to be on the mat, but the mat is often painful, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. De depending on what one brings to it. Right. Yeah. But at the end, the exertion, there's joy in the exertion. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm glad you referenced time because that's, that's one of the signature sections of the book that I wanted to spend some time on. And, you know, it's, it's trust there's time. And I kind of added my own little ING there, trusting there's time, right? And I had like a bunch of just, again, scribbled notes on here to, to for, for that section, which is, you know, the, the urgency that's mm. sort of built into so much of how this works currently, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the way I think of that is like all of the toxic things around hustle culture and, and all yeah. that kind of stuff, right? Which, you know, has been around for a long time, um, even if we didn't use that language. But then there's also this notion of like giving alarm without being alarming, you mm -hmm. know, because a lot of people will, will even though the book is written in a very gentle way, they'll, they'll feel like, oh, you're just blowing this out of proportion, right? <laughs> like, you mm -hmm. know, there's always the naysayers. And yeah. I'm like, nah, you got to raise an alarm without being alarming. Mm -hmm. And I think we can move with purpose without being in this place of, you know, time being our enemy. So I want to give you a time, a, a moment to kind of share the, the time element and, and why that was so important in the way you, you frame a lot of the conversation. Yeah. I mean, we found that one of the things that really inhibits, inhibits economic imagination and kind of keeps so many of us trapped in business as usual is this sense that there's, well, there's just not enough time to do that in that way. <laughs> you know, we, we, we just can't, it's not a priority. And then if you keep asking, well, why is it not a priority? Oh, well, there's just not time. Well, why? Wh whose time? <laughs> you know, and, and we did more historical assessment of this too, just really were curious about the lineage of, you know, how clock time came to, be you know essentially a, a management technique clock time invented as a management technique to control control labor and our time became divided that was owned by our workplaces and management and that that was whatever time we had left around the edges so there's this scarcity that still exists around this idea of our time being owned and um 
work cultures and, um, and that we're on someone else's clock that all links to this. What, what is this clock doing? What, this clock is still, still connected to this larger lovelessness ism that's, you know, extracting resources and consolidating it. So, okay. So if that's not our end goal, not that our end goal isn't to be profitable, all these businesses and organizations are very profitable, have great employee retention and all these traditional metrics are hit. They're just not participating in that in the same macro lovelessness creation. So if we want all those things, but we don't need to do it in this like hyper-specific way that creates this mass extraction, then how can we reimagine too when there is actual urgency, like perhaps urgency for justice, <laughs> um, but but not urgency to consolidate wealth, which sounds like if you walked into a meeting and you were like, this just feels like, obviously we all know we don't want an urgency to consolidate wealth. People will be like, yeah, yeah, that's a weird thing to even say. But if you really like dig down, that is ultimately what a lot of this urgency is. And the organizations and businesses that were doing really well in innovatively or around innovation were the ones that trusted there was time to imagine different. And it, you know, again, wasn't that it was easy because there's still that, like there's only this 24 hour in the day clock time thing and we're all in this culture around it. Um, and it's, you know, the, the main thing we saw just to add a caveat here is that teams need to do this together. It's really difficult to be like one individual that's just like, by the way, y'all, on this department now, I'm trusting there's time differently. Um, that could lead to one even being fired. And we, we saw cases like that. So it's, you know, this is this is a, about a organizing together situation. I, I really want to drill down on this a little bit because it, it feels to me as a, a outsider, right, that time is the is the battlefield, right? Like, you know, not not to use um I try not to use military and confrontational type of analogies if I can avoid them, but it feels like time has become the place where we're testing each other. And what I mean by that, and I'm curious as to your thoughts on it, is that when I see these new technologies that are coming up as we now have distributed work to some extent, it's about like keeping you on track as to where are you? Right. Like, I think if you look at like an, an Amazon where they're working in warehouses, everything is timed to the moment, right? Like no bathroom breaks, like how long does it take you to stuff these boxes? But oh. even those of us who work in, I don't know what you want to call this, this thinking and whatever, <laughs> like we don't, we're not tethered to like a, a manual type of labor. Mm -hmm. It's about okay, am I keeping track of you? Like, what's your digital footprint? There's a security element that is, when I look at it, I'm like, okay, you're just trying to make sure that I'm working, right? Like, this is the, <laughs> right. the time thing. And, you know, living in New York, we see, and anywhere, I guess any major city, you know, tons of delivery people, right? Like, just kind of scurrying around. And so much of their ratings on your Uber Eats and all these other things are predicated about how fast they fucking get there, right? Like, how fast can you get me my pizza or my tacos or whatever fucking bullshit I just ordered, right? So we're judging these people based on how fast and often how unsafely they can move from one place to another because they got to get that five stars right. in order to keep all this going. So, and, and the app tracks them, right? Mm -hmm. We're looking at them, how close are they? Are they around the corner? Why does it just say three minutes, right? Like it's all these <laughs> things. So how do we like move away from that when so much of the way in which we measure service and comfort is based on time for some of us and extractive for others? Mm -hmm. Wow. I obviously don't know the answer to that. But. <laughs> I don't know if there is one, right? I'm just, it's more like impressions, right? right. I don't have an answer to it. No one to, to think about. I mean, I, and important to meditate on. I mean, I, something I ask myself a lot is just like, how can efficiency be decoupled from time? Like, how are we measuring, like efficiency as a definition includes time right now. Does it always need to? Maybe it does. I don't. I don't know. I I haven't gotten the bottom of this, but it's something I think about. Like, what are different? How can we redefine things based in the context we want to end up in? And just a lot of this research has almost felt like a, a futuring practice, kind of of just getting really clear that the way we work 
becomes what we are in and the means are the ends, not, you know, not that the end justifies the means, the means just are the ends. So if whatever today is, if we keep doing today, then we'll end up in the same today tomorrow. (laughs) But if we want a different future, then we could start trying to pull threads of that future into our days currently, even in small micro ways and just start living them in experimentation, even, even where there's friction and discomfort. So within that, I'm often just trying to be like, okay, well, definitionally, how could, what are the, what are the questions we should be asking ourselves so we can all co-create the answers together? And I think some of them are around redefining efficiency. I think others are around just remember, like if we can remember that time is just an experience not to get all quantum physics here and if time time can just be experienced different ways there's the clock time that we tend to super experience mostly in dominant lovelessness economy culture but there's also you know we all experience different forms of time too like when you get lost listening to music or you know a live performance or even just how one feels when they first wake up in the morning sometimes you know you're going on dreamland like we actually do all experience time really differently throughout the course of a day what kinds how do we want to experience time in a workplace and there might be certain qualitative experiences of time that actually function better than clock time for innovation for quality control or perhaps even efficiency. I don't know for sure. I don't know what they are, but I feel like we can all figure it out together. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I and I think that gets us to the the, the knowing and the unknowing, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. what what really interested me, and and again, this is my own sort of biases, but fuck it, my show, I can allowed <laughs> that a lot of the work that you did was uncovering these stories and and co-creating, co-learning, you use all these terms throughout the book and it's, it's qualitative, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that there's nothing in this that's quantitative, but the over-reliance on quantitative things is, is very much how I think about how we think about time, right? Like it's used as a cudgel to enforce the status quo, right? So, you know, do you have data on that? You know, like if you don't, gotcha. if you if you don't have like some sort of like number, mm-hmm. despite the fact that most people out there, and I'm going to just put this out in the universe, most of these people talking about data and numbers don't know shit about either, right? Like <laughs> they just, they're just pre-programmed to say it. Because I've, I've sat in meetings with folks where they're asking number questions and I'm like, you've really never taken a statistics class, right? Like you just don't understand, you literally don't understand what you're even trying to ask. Right. You can make numbers say anything too. <laughs> you can make numbers say anything, right? But so much of our thinking is predicated on that, right? Like it's again one of those cudgels that exist in this world. So a lot of what we you just walk through is there are things you know because you've experienced them. They're part of your story mm-hmm. and they're relevant, but it's not like you can put a label on that, mm-hmm. right? To say oh yeah, you know, I'm more efficient this way versus another, right? And so there's a uniformity that we try to make come out of this. And so earlier in, in the conversation, we were talking about how much of our labor practices come from slavery extractive practices, right? How do we keep human beings as chattel and then make them as quote unquote productive as possible, right? But there's mm-hmm. so many inefficiencies or cruelties built into that, right? Because it doesn't, Rest is not important, right? Mental health is not important. Like autonomy is not important. It's just producing. So kind of coming out of that, how did you, as a team, kind of reflecting back on the process, was that ever part of the the thinking that we are sharing knowing and unknowing in order to learn from, but it's not going to fit into the tight, usual box of charts and graphs and correlated, you know, sign curves and all the rest of that mysticism that mask itself as insight. Yeah, we talked about a lot. I mean, I think there's not to do too much of a historical deep dive here. And I'm not a trained historian, (laughs) just a small business practitioner who believes we should look more at history. And um, from my reading, at least, I believe there's a twinning history um, of how we got to this over-reliance on quantitative metrics 
that directly relates to enslavement practices, the plantation economy and settler colonialism, even just the, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the, the proper noun, but there was this society, um, like club of elite settler colonial land owning white men from Britain that you were, had no formal training, but were set out in what became the States to collect only a certain type of data that was manipulated to be used as justification for the practices that still exist today on our work cultures. And it was all through one, the white man's eye. It was all through one way of thinking, one way of talking, one way of doing. And most of the world, the majority world was completely left out of it and that form of analysis. And not that that's where academia is now and not that there's not a um, a lot of, not that quantitative metrics aren't important. I'm glad when I go to the doctor that they have some quantitative numbers to give me about success of different, you know, options for medical treatment. And it's not an accident, I think, that in business schools, in definitely as we've been talking about this research, there's a certain type of cult question we get that's like not to sound stereotyping but there's like we call it like the bro question where someone rolls up and kind of like what you were saying like just like well but how, how do you really know and what are the numbers you know it's like it's just this there's a lineage there that is used to justify business as usual um that is no accident so we talked a lot in our team about how do we continue to unlearn not just in the way that we saw the organizations and businesses unlearning in their work cultures, but in how research is done too. And just kind of take what felt natural and intuitive to us humans <laughs> in community together. And there was one amazing collaborator, M. Strickland, and they really early on um, gave Joanna and I confidence to be like, qualitative research can look all different ways and it can look like community and it can look like love. And I'll be so grateful to M for that insight. That's awesome. I think that's a that's a perfect summation as as someone who definitely is is far more qual in their in their <laughs> um, far more quantitative rather, um qualitative rather than quantitative in their thinking. You know, I think there's <laughs> deep truths to be mined in in one versus the other stories, right? They're mm -hmm. they're critical. You know, I, I think about um, Thomas King, who's an author I've cited, and he has like a, a lot of great writing. But he, when he talks about stories, he's like, once you've heard it, you can't say that you haven't. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, you you might not you might not take the lesson, you might not act on it, but you can never say that you didn't hear this story. And I, I found that in, incredibly insightful, um, far more than a qu quadratic equations and all that, other, <laughs> all that other stuff. I want to get to the final two segments of the show. Mm -hmm. And the first one is off the dome. And off the dome are just some rapid fire questions. First thing that comes to mind, and I have two of them for you. Um, I'm, I actually have written down three, but I don't really love one of them. So we're only going to do two. Transparency. <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I was kind of looking at it and I was like, eh, that one kind of sucks. Like, I'm not going to muddy up what has been a great show with a shitty off the dome question. That would be, be terrible, right? So the first off the dome question is obviously, as you know, reading the book, and I mentioned this earlier, there's so much collaboration mm -hmm. tied into not only as a as a thought process of how to move forward, but as a working process of creating this. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to ask, what is a trait? If you can narrow it down to one, I even give you two if you want to. What is a trait that you admire in a working partner or colleague? Oh, wow. Fun question. Um, I mean, the honest answer is a high risk tolerance for me. That's just me as a collaborator personally. And then the second I would say is honesty. Okay. Those are two pretty critical <laughs> two pretty critical traits that one could need in any relationship, much less yeah. a, a working one. We don't really talk about either of those in the books. This is just Jess's feelings. No, but it's, but it's important, right? And then the second off the dome question that I still do like is, um, what is the last time or the most recent time you did something for the first time? Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm only thinking of ridiculously silly examples. Uh, Those count. <laughs> <laughs> did something for the first time. 
Okay. <laughs> go with the silly one. I, uh, just because this cat is on my lap right now, but I am on book tour with my cat. Who does that? Definitely the first time I'm doing that. <laughs> first time I'm traveling with a cat, doing surprisingly well on planes. We're learning a lot about what it is. But um, this little kitten wandered out of the forest and this land project I was organizing around and had, you know, injuries at like three weeks old. And he's just been a part of the book journey, too. He's been there every step of the way. That's awesome. An answer, but a truthful one. <laughs> no, that is awesome. That's, that's a great answer. I'm glad both of you are on tour together, right? Like <laughs> if these were rock and roll days, they wouldn't be a cat, right? They'd be something probably far worse so cats are awesome <laughs> that's right yeah sometimes i feel like if you know if the book's just not hitting the numbers we think then all i need to do is just open up an instagram account for a cat on book tour and that that will be our end you know <laughs> there you go you you might want to go ahead and do that <laughs> regardless of whatever the numbers are a cat on book tour would be a huge thing on instagram right. yeah. <laughs> we love our cats um <laughs> So that is awesome. So I, I want to get to the final segment of the show, which is the drop. And the drop is just anything at all that we recommend to the listeners out there that they can check out. Doesn't have to be super serious, even though mine, unfortunately, is kind of serious. So I'll go first. And it's a documentary that I completed, I think, last week. Um, very heavy topic, but I think worth watching for anyone. It's called The U.S. and the Holocaust. So it's a recent Ken Burns documentary. And... It's, I'm going to say only three nights because I know documentaries, Ken Burns can be longer, you know, but it's three nights, about two hours each night. And it's um, just a really interesting history that I think would be useful for most people who, of course, in the, in, when thinking about Nazi Germany and World War II, America is cast and, you know, grudgingly, rightfully so as sort of the hero in that story. But this traces the direct sort of legal and immigration policy that unclearly led to thousands, if not more, of Jewish people dying as they were unable to find safe haven in places like the United States. Um, so it's a, it's a history that I think clearly shows how there's a long tail to many policy decisions. So the racist decisions to change immigration policy in the 1890s led to like I said, thousands being turned away in the 1930s, which ultimately led to their death. So it's a really, I think, sobering history that many people likely don't know, but it's useful because it takes, again, I'm all about hard truths. So the dark things that we've done should be well put up there along with D-Day, right? It's not just about saving Private Ryan. It's also about the fact that you turned away Anne Frank. So deal with that, America. Um, so the U S and the Holocaust is my drop for this episode. So you're up. What is your drop? So I think there's, there's the work of two people I would recommend, um, Antoinette D. Carroll, uh, of creative reaction lab is, you know, I'm biased because she's one of the co-learners in this research though, you know, that's a very small part of her huge CV and has just done has so much amazing content online from video, like videos of talks to um, what Creative Reaction Lab and the rest of the team has done uh, in their work around how do we really think about design and innovation differently. So the work of Antoinette D. Carroll, highly recommend. Plus, she's just a lovely, fun human <laughs> that comes through in her work. And then for anyone who doesn't yet know about the work of Adrienne Marie Brown, all of her books, I think, are part of um, what I hope becomes a wider and wider canon of thinking differently about how we approach relationship, whether it's in work or beyond. Absolutely. Adrienne Marie Brown has been on the show. So she's a, she's a former guest of The Deep Dive. So I will co-sign <laughs> on her work. And, um, and in my drop, I'm also going to give a shout out to Timothy Snyder, who has also been a guest on the show, and he's one of the featured historical um, historians and thinkers in the U.S. and the Holocaust. So he pops up from time to time as an expert on many things. So shout out to both of both Adrian and Tim, Timothy Snyder. And I want to use that also as a bridge to thank you, Jess, for being on the deep dive. This is a 
a great conversation filled with very serious ideas, but also some good laughs and a cat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, got to do it all. <laughs> <laughs> we, we do it all. Copious amounts of tea and a cat were had during this conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much. I This was a really fun way to start the morning um, and got me thinking uh, for the rest of the day and just... Thanks to anyone who listened in as well. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks again. Bye-bye. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.